Would you turn with me in God's holy word to 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you were not with us last Sunday night, we actually went on to chapter 6. But we reserved the text we look at this morning for today since it deals with office bearers. And I thought it would be appropriate to consider on Installation Sunday. And so we're looking at verses, uh, chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 to the end of the chapter. The section before this was that about honoring widows, caring for widows, and now about honoring the elders. We'll forego the reading of the part about widows again and just pick it up at verse 17, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, God's word. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. May God bless his holy word to us. We'll ask him for his blessing and prayer. Shall we bow together? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your inscripturated word written by your apostle and preserved throughout the ages for your people. We're grateful, Lord, to be assembled before your word, asking you now that you would speak it clearly to our hearts and that you'd give us the grace and the faith to understand it and to embrace it, and to live by it. We thank you, Lord, for your love for your church, for the order you give her. We pray, God, that you bless us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of Christ, our text here this morning calls us to honor the elders. But this is not a new call that arises for the first time in First Timothy, or even for the first time in the New Testament, but it's a call that is ancient. In fact, it was really the call that God gave to his people already in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 24, the elders of Israel were given a remarkable privilege. God had brought his people out of captivity in Egypt. He had brought them to Mount Sinai. We read from chapter 19 where God told his people to get ready for the appearing of God. But he gave to his people clear instruction they were not to approach the mountain or they would die. And yet, God bestowed a privilege upon Moses and upon Aaron and his immediate sons and upon 70 elders of Israel. 
they all were called to come up the mountain to worship God. That was a remarkable event. We read in Exodus chapter 24 concerning Moses, Aaron, and his sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, quote, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stones, and it was like the heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Now, the apostle actually in 1 Timothy 6 will say shortly that no one can see God. He dwells in unapproachable light. But Exodus 24 tells us that there's this remarkable event in the life of God's people that these 70 elders look up and they see as through translucent pavement, they see into the heaven of heavens, as it were, where God is. And they eat and they drink a fellowship meal with the covenant Lord. These 70 elders have a foretaste of the very thing that our lives aspire to, to see our God, to be with our God, to know our God, the beatific vision, to be satisfied with God's presence. It's an amazing thing because God was showing to his people the great things he has in store for them. As you look at that episode in Exodus 24, there's a couple of of very relevant things for for our text this morning in 1 Timothy. Number one, God, by bringing 70 elders into his presence like that, was saying to his whole people, this is what's in store for you. These 70 elders are representatives of the people, and God is saying to his people, this is your destiny. As I enter into covenant with you, I am your God, you my people, this is the thing to which you are to aspire, to eat and drink in the presence of the living God, to see God's face. But the other thing is this, by choosing out 70 elders to go up this mountain and be in God's presence, God was lifting up the elders before Israel and teaching them to esteem their elders, to honor their elders. Because That great goal of arriving in God's presence is very much connected to the elders God gives his people to shepherd them and guide them and keep them for the day of coming into God's presence. So the elders in Exodus 24 are both the representatives showing us the promise of God. We shall be there one day, but they're also the instruments of God to bring us there by their faithful ministries. The calling to honor elders is as old as Moses. Being an elder is a high privilege, and it's a weighty responsibility. And being a congregation of Christ that has elders is a great privilege, because God promises to bless us through them. So this morning we look at this text. It's about elders in particular. Much of what we read here could be applied as well to deacons. But in it, we see the love of the Lord for his church, that he teaches elders how to live and how congregation, how to respond, that we might magnify God's name together, and that we might be strengthened and protected as we serve below and seek our God above. It's important because the very thing that God is about in our lives is the thing that Satan doesn't want to happen. And if God's great goal for us, our destiny, is to arrive in the presence of God, we know Satan is out to destroy that, to ruin that plan and purpose of God. And therefore, if God is pleased to use office bearers in our lives for good, then we know that Satan is against that. So we need this word of the Lord this morning to be strengthened.
Let's look at how Jesus teaches his church to properly esteem the office of elder. I think there's three parts to our text, and you could remember them if you like, maybe with these three words. Verses 17 and 18, you could put the word appreciation. Verses 19 through 21, the word adjudication. And verses 22 through 25, the word appointment. So first of all, appreciation, we're called to to esteem those who rule over us. And then verses 19 to 21, adjudication. God teaches us how to impartially handle accusations and sin among the elders. And then finally, verse 22 to the end, appointment. How men are to be carefully chosen to the office. Well, as I mentioned, Paul had been speaking about honoring widows. And now he turns in verse 17 and says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Earlier in this letter, back in chapter 3, it already set forth the qualifications for elders and for deacons. And now the Lord is saying these men who are appointed are to be honored in the office. And the Lord apparently knows that, that we are prone to forget that. And so he brings this instruction. Children don't always remember to honor mother and father. We citizens don't always remember to honor our governing authorities. And in the church, as a congregation, we don't always remember to honor the office bearers God gives. And so God says, honor. Remember, count them worthy of double honor who rule well. Somebody might say, well, office bearers don't need anything but the approval of God. But office bearers are mere mortals. They're men. And they are subject to discouragement and to weariness and to frustrations And they are greatly blessed, as we all are, by support, by encouragement, by respect. And so God is reminding us here by his spirit that the respect and honor of a congregation goes a long way toward encouraging office bearers in their work. And when office bearers are encouraged in their work, then the congregation is greatly blessed. Well, how should we honor those who are over us? There are many ways our form this morning, installation form mentioned some of those, but we're called to receive their ministry, to submit to their instruction, we're called to receive their teaching, we're called to show them respect, we're called in terms of the deacons to present them with the gifts necessary to care for those in need, we're called to honor our office bearers in the way we speak about them and the way we speak to them, and particularly when we disagree with them, we're called to honor them by regularly praying for them asking for the Lord's help to them and their work. We're, we're called to honor them by teaching our children to honor them. There's a memorable incident in 2 Kings 2. Remember when the mantle falls from Elijah to Elisha. And suddenly as Elisha begins his ministry, a pile of young people show up and start mocking him. Go up, baldy, go up, baldy. And he turns around and curses them and two Mother bears come out of the forest, and 42 young people are mauled. And you think, wow. Were there 80 parents who did not teach their children to honor the prophet? There's a calling that we have as office bearers, but there's also a calling that we have as parents to teach children to honor those who are over them. 
Children who are raised in homes where office bearers are regularly disregarded or run down with words grow up to do foolish things like those youths. But children who grow up in homes, they hear their parents speak in good ways about office bearers and hear their parents pray earnestly for them. They grow up to respect them ordinarily. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Commentators puzzle over what's the double part of the honor. Is it that widows get so much honor, but now elders get double honor? Is it that they get the honor of respect plus the honor of payment? He's going to go on to talk about wages. I think it might just be that he's saying that as office bearers, they're worthy of respect. And if they rule well and give themselves to the task, they're worthy of respect for that regard too. They're worthy of double honor, double respect. I think that verse should be an encouragement to office bearers to give themselves to their work. It's one thing to be appointed to office. It's another thing to give oneself with zeal and enthusiasm to the task of being an office bearer, to pray and to work, to be the greatest blessing I can be to the church. That's how an elder or deacon should, should look at himself. I want to be the greatest blessing I can be to God's people. Being an office bearer isn't merely about wearing a title, but about doing a work. Remember 1 Thessalonians 5, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. The church needs office bearers, not who occupy a seat, but who do a work. That's the calling. Our Lord Jesus Christ, our chief office bearer, is a workman. The church needs men who pray, who wrestle in prayer, and who study the word, and who know the flock, and who serve the needs of God's people. The apostle says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And it seems that already in the Apostle Paul's day, there was this distinction in the eldership between those who ruled and those who particularly gave themselves to teaching the Word of God. That's how our ordination form interprets that, and that goes back at least to John Calvin and his commentary. He saw it that way, that among the eldership, there are some who are set apart and devoted to the teaching and preaching of the Word. And so our Presbyterian brothers and sisters speak of ruling elders and teaching elders. And in our reform circles, we speak of elders and of ministers. And that's the idea, that there are some who labor, especially in teaching. But it's to be a work, isn't it? The task of the minister, the task of a teaching elder, is to labor in the word and doctrine. To spend time in it. The Apostle Paul will go on in 2 Timothy to tell Pastor Timothy, who's really more than a pastor, we should note. We look at the instructions given to Timothy. He's not, we call him Pastor Timothy, but he's really a representative of the Apostle. And so he has authority far beyond an ordinary pastor as we know him today. But Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, "...to be diligent to present yourself approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth." And the idea, I think, is that Timothy is to be a worker in the Word. He's to be in that Word, handling it correctly, preaching it faithfully. And perhaps because that takes so much time to study the Word and to labor in teaching the Word, 
that the apostle goes on to speak about wages in verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. The apostle uses two different examples from the farm life. The second one, the labor is worthy of his wages, is actually, well, it's the words Jesus speaks in Luke chapter 10. And it's interesting, by way of an aside here, that, that, that Paul says, verse 18, the scripture says, and then he gives those words, the labor is worthy of his wages, which comes, perhaps he's drawing upon Luke 10, where Jesus says that. And if in that case, it's interesting to think of the relationship between Paul and Luke, who traveled and ministered together at times, and to think of Luke, who's busily writing his gospel account, and maybe now it's being published, and Paul is quoting from it. But in any case, Christ in Luke 10 sends out the disciples two by two, and he says, don't take a money bag. But depend on the hospitality of those to whom you minister. Eat what's set before you, because the laborers were worthy of his wages. But the first quote is actually a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. When the oxen are trampling the grain to separate the kernels from the chaff and the sheaves, a cruel pagan might put a muzzle on the ox so it can't eat any of the profit. And God told Israel, don't do that. The beast is worthy of the fruit of his work. Let him eat. And if he eats while he works, he might even work for you better. Now, the Apostle Paul uses that same word from Deuteronomy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And the Apostle Paul says that, that he has foregone what is his right. He's not, to, he's not being supported by the Corinthians. He's chosen not to, but he says, I could have. For, 1 Corinthians 9, 14, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So that's the principle that's laid down. That the labor is worthy of his wages. Well, as you can imagine, probably is not real comfortable for any minister to preach about paying ministers. But I suppose I'm in the most comfortable position this morning that one could be in because while some ministers might have to preach this word in a difficult financial situation, that's certainly not the case here. Very grateful for your generous care and support to my family and I and for all your abundant provisions for all our needs and more so that I preach this because it's recorded here. I am to preach it, but there's not any lack and we thank you for your care and for making it easy to give time, full time, to studying the Word and to teaching the Word. And I do pray that that kind of a ministry is beneficial to you. And I think in our Reformed churches generally that's been the case, that because we've been able to set ministers aside to the task of laboring in the Word, that our churches have done better doctrinally with men who are able to study what the Word of God says. But the point here, verses 17 and 18, is honor, esteem. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. But let's move from appreciation to adjudication in verses 19 through 21. 19 through 21. The apostle says now at verse 19, Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except from two or three witnesses. And he now is safeguarding and protecting the ministry of elders. You can understand that 
that an elder who is faithful in his office will provoke some anger among those who are ungodly or stubborn in their sin. Those who serve publicly are often subject to criticism and rumors. Those who preach the word of God faithfully will face insults and slander. And so the Apostle Paul, he he puts up a hedge now and he says to Timothy, deal very cautiously with accusations. Don't receive an accusation against an elder unless it comes by two or three witnesses. He doesn't want to see a faithful elder's reputation ruined by a smear campaign or a minister's ministry tied up in church courts every time a frivolous charge is leveled against him. And Paul is really applying here an Old Testament word, Deuteronomy 19.15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Jesus applied that in Matthew 18 as well. Remember, if your brother sins against you, go to your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others with you, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now, witnesses don't always have to be living, breathing people. In Old Testament days, witnesses were generally people. That's what you got. But today we have text messages and emails and video surveillance and so forth. There are times, aren't there, when inappropriate actions of an office bearer are quite adequately revealed by other sources of evidence. But the point is to be careful here. And then Paul goes on to make clear it's not that an elder is above being charged. Verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Serving as an office bearer does not exempt one from God's commands or discipline. And in fact, if a sin is public, and that's what I think the apostle is dealing with here, public sin or private sin that a man refuses to repent of and therefore becomes public, but public scandal, public sin is to be dealt with publicly. so that the other office bearers in the church are not led astray. Everyone should see the consequences of this. Office bearers in the Church of Christ bear a weighty responsibility for the glory of God's name and for the well-being of his people. And office bearers, like every member, are subject to the discipline of the church. And office bearers are actually, if they're worthy of double honor, they're also subject to double discipline. Both to discipline as a Christian and to discipline in terms of their office. Our church order makes that clear, that an office bearer may be suspended from office or deposed from office. And an office bearer, if he sins in public scandal and repents, he as a Christian is forgiven, of course, and discipline is lifted. But even if he repents, it may be necessary to continue with discipline in terms of his office. He may have to be removed from office. Our calling as office bearers, as we heard it this morning, is quite serious. Set an example of godliness in their personal life, in their home life, and in their relations with their fellow men. 
and elders are charged with overseeing the lives and service of all the other office bearers. When it says they should, the elders, with love and humility, promote the faithful discharge of the office by their fellow officers, having particular regard to the doctrine and conduct of the minister of the word, that the church may be edified and may show itself to be the pillar and ground of the truth. See that? There's at least two different passages from 1 Timothy that are in our ordination form, right? The one, distinguishing elders from, from ministers or teaching elders, and this other verse, pillar and ground of the truth, which we looked at earlier in 1 Timothy. And now, and now the, the form is reminding us that God's reputation is on the line here. How will the church be the pillar and ground of the truth, holding out the truth to the world if the church doesn't live by the truth? And how is it apparent the church lives by the truth if she has office bearers who are walking in sin and the church does nothing about it? The church is God's house. Earlier, 1 Timothy 3, Paul wrote, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Church is God's house. And therefore, God's reputation is on the line because the world looks upon us as the stewards of the truth of God. And so it's a serious business to deal with scandal among office bearers. We may grow callous to it as we read it in the newspapers or see it in the news, Another big scandal, another minister, sexual improprieties, embezzlement of funds. But God doesn't think it's funny at all. In fact, verse 21, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Isn't that remarkable? The Apostle Paul grabs Timothy by the collar, as it were, and he drags him into the presence of the living God and the Lord Christ, the head of the church and the judge to come, and even the elect angels who've been sent to minister to us and are observing all that goes on. And why does Paul do that to Timothy? I think he does it to Timothy because he knows... That we are often moved by subjective considerations rather than the objective truth of God's word. And it's the subjective considerations of the feelings of people and what they'll think about me. Or how good of friends we are that bears upon us rather than the objective truth of scripture. And what's the only thing when those subjective considerations feel so weighty and moving, what's the only thing that will cause us to obey the word when it's tough? It's to know that God is watching and God will hold us accountable. We live before God. When I was in seminary, I went to lunch with a retired minister who told me, that in the course of his ministry at one point, there was a man walking in open rebellion. And the elders had been very slow to finish discipline. This had been dragging on for years. And he urged them to do their duty. And they 
they regained strength. They finally prepared to bring this matter of impenitence to an end. They'd gone through the steps. It was time for the man to be excommunicated, the ultimate remedy. The day it was appointed, the elders were sitting in the council room before the worship service. On the day in which the excommunication was to be read, and one of them said, I don't know. Another one said, I don't know. And finally, they all decided a few minutes before church that they weren't going to do it. And I said to the minister, what, what happened? What did you do? He said, I never brought it up again. So discouraged he was. You know, when I was a seminary student, that story kind of shocked me. I thought, how could that be? But now I understand better the subjective considerations that feel very weighty. The family bonds, the friendships, the concern about other people's feelings, or what people will think about me if I do that. Because Paul loves Christ... And because Paul loves Timothy, he grabs hold of Timothy's eyes and he says, quit looking at people and set your eyes upon the living God. That you, without prejudice and without partiality, may obey the command of your master. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. The eldership is not a good old boys club, where if you get made an elder, then you can do no wrong. Timothy, if an elder is walking in sin, bringing down the reputation of the Lord God in the world, and tempting his people, you must rebuke him in the presence of all. That's the word of the Lord. God's not a God of favoritism. God is not a God of partiality. God is a God of truth. And his church, the pillar and ground of the truth, must be a people of truth. And it's fear of God that sets us free of the fear of men. And that's a lesson that goes to every one of us in every circumstance of our life, that it's the fear of God that sets us free of the fear of men. And when you're overcome by the fear of men, whatever your calling in life is, when God drags you into the presence of God and of Christ and of the elect angels, then you're reminded about what really matters. But the Apostle Paul would wish and pray that Timothy won't ever have to do that. That he'll be helped in not having lots of cases of discipline among the eldership if he obeys the final command. Let's turn to the third point. From appreciation and from adjudication to appointment. Verse 22, our third point. 
Verse 22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Paul says to Timothy, you'll be helped and you'll avoid a lot of trouble in the church and a lot of discipline cases if you'll be slow in ordaining people to office. Earlier, he gave him the qualifications for office, but it takes time to see those qualifications manifest in the life of another man. We all have met people, and we thought they were this way, but after time, we realized they were this way. For good or for bad, people are not always what they appear to be. It takes time to know who they are. And so the apostle says it takes time for people to be properly vetted that they may serve in the offices. So don't be hasty lest you share in other people's sins. Because if you ordain people hastily and then you find out that they're wicked, then you're co-responsible. Instead, keep yourself pure, he says. And after he says keep yourself pure, then he tells Timothy to start drinking wine. Which, as you might imagine, verse 23 is a bit of a puzzler. How does it fit in here? How does it end up here? That suddenly in this eldership discussion, Timothy's told not just to drink water, but to use a little wine. Wine was, in those days, often prescribed for ailments of different kinds. And is Paul saying, Timothy, you got to stay pure, but I know you're given to being a little too austere, and therefore you don't drink any wine, but you need to drink some now. Or is Paul saying, Timothy, I know all these things weigh upon you, and i got stomach trouble already. You're going to get ulcers, drink a little wine, we'll have her. Or whatever reason it is that brings Paul to say this, this is the love he shows to Timothy, that in the midst of all of this, he cares about Timothy's physical health. That's pleasant, isn't it? It's pleasant to know that God is not immune to the toll it takes upon office bearers to be faithful. Use a little wine, don't become drunk. But Paul shows care for Timothy. And then he seems to resume the discussion in verse 24 and say, some, some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment. Others, those of others, follow later. Same thing with good works. Some aren't show, don't show up at first. And The apostle seems to be giving in verses 24 and 25 the ground or reason of verse 22. You have to delay. Don't be hasty in ordaining because it takes time to know sin and to know good works. It's a good thing, isn't it? Earlier in 1 Timothy 3, the apostle said that an elder could not be a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So there in 1 Timothy 3, he says, don't ordain a new Christian lest it cause him to fall. But now he says, don't ordain a new Christian, don't ordain someone the church doesn't know until they have time to see the evidence of a godly and fruitful life. So many instructions. I'm sort of reminded in preaching through this passage why it is that we preach through books of the Bible because... Probably not too many ministers like myself would just choose a text like this out of the blue. But as we preach through a book of the Bible, you preach the whole word. And when you preach the whole word of God, it's surprising sometimes what's in the word, isn't it? And it keeps us from inventing a God according to our own imaginations 
or a church according to our own imaginations. Because as we go through God's word, God shapes our view of him and God shapes our view of the church. As we read this passage this morning, we're reminded this is Christ's church. He is the king and head of the church and we're reminded of his great purpose to bring us to glory. For the 70 elders who were in the presence of God, that high and much higher we shall be. We shall see our God and be like him. But God, in getting us to that place, is pleased to use elders and to use deacons too. May God grant our men to be faithful in service, and may he give us hearts to pray for them and to honor them. Amen. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. And we praise you, O Lord, because it's a true word, it's a faithful word, it's the word of the living God. O Father, give us grace to embrace the things you say and to apply them with all wisdom and love and patience and full surrender to you. And may we be blessed and built up, Lord, as we do that. And may your name be lifted high in this world. And may it be clear that we are, by your grace, the pillar and ground of the truth. So hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.